Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> this was it. He was killing his dad. He was ready. He picked up his favorite baseball bat and headed into his dad's room. Once there, positioned, and ready to take a swing at his dad's head, Daryl Jr. paused and gazed at his sleeping father. He quietly lowered his bat and crept out of the bedroom, through the back door, and into the dark night. He gave a sharp whistle and their nameless dog came to him. Once the dog reached the end of his chain, he lay down near his feet. Daryl Jr. gave it a pat on the head, stood back, and took aim. The dog collapsed without a whimper. Oh. Daryl pondered the situation for a moment with a frown on his face. He dropped his bat to the ground and headed back into the house. Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we're sharing the story of Daryl Hedbert Jr., who killed his father, Daryl Hedbert Sr. Daryl Hedbert Sr. was a member of the Ojibwa tribe. Ojibwa, is that the same tribe as the Chippewas? Yes, it is. I'm surprised you know that. Well, Chippewa is what the colonists came to call them because they couldn't follow the pronunciation of the word, which often sounded more like Jibawa, but really the Ojibwa call themselves the Anishinaabe. Their language is part of the Algonquin language family. Wow, cool. You seem to know a lot about them. Not a lot, just a little. Native American culture is really important and really interesting. It is. I'm so sad so much has been lost along the way. Me too. So, both of them were members of the Ojibwa tribe. That's right. Anyway, after graduating from Bemidji High School, where he played defense on their football team, Daryl Sr. attended the local university. Bemidji State University, where he was said to have excelled. Upon graduation, he decided to remain in his hometown and found a job at a local lumber mill. He could have left and started a new life elsewhere, but was happy where he was. He knew what people said about the violence and addiction that ran through his tribe. He'd experienced some of that himself, but he also knew the rest of the story. He knew how his people struggled with poverty and he understood the customs that tied them to nature. The Leech Lake Indian Reservation is a place of pristine beauty. When you mention it to outsiders, they will rave about the breathtaking beauty of the hardwood trees circling the three lakes. They will tell you about their adventures with snowmobiling, fishing, and hunting on this verdant land. And they will sometimes mention the abject poverty of many of those who live on the reservation, with all the concomitant problems of addiction and violence. In the old days, the narrative blamed the tribal members for the ills identified on the reservation, and it was deeply insinuated that all Ojibwa living on the tribal lands were jobless and drug addicted, and this was not true. In the old days, white people proclaimed themselves to be their benevolent saviors. Children were taken from their tribal homes to be saved. Americanized by the white people. The context of their culture was devalued and ignored. 
This was in a time when American leaders felt the solution was to put many of the children into white foster homes during the school year. The goal was to give them stability and to educate them along with their own children. It was said to be an effort to break the cycles of violence and addiction that seemed to be baked into the children's lives. They didn't know it at the time, but it turned out to be a pretty bad idea overall. And they never acknowledged that all communities, all cultures, have pockets of poverty, violence, and addiction. When you mention Leech Lake to the Ojibwa, who have ties to the reservation, they mention their love of the land, their respect for their tribal culture and traditions, their worries for the youth of their tribe, and their perspective that the white man loves to come exploit their land. There is tension here. I can tell. It sounds like the typical kinds of tension that envelop a place where cultures clash when one group of people have been colonized by another and where cross-cultural encounters often end badly. Yeah, I think so too. And in Leech Lake, that tension often results in kids being pulled from their homes. Homes where their parents don't actually live, but it's still their homes. And they're sent to live with white foster families in nearby towns. These foster parents can take them in, send them to school, teach them the societal mores of their own culture, and help them build a future off of the reservation. But they can't help these kids reconcile the two cultures. They can't eliminate the friends, families, traditions, and memories of the child's tribe. And they shouldn't. The reservation is, in many ways, their anchor, their home, their tribal history, their hearts. Daryl understood this. He wanted to be sure any children he had would understand it, too. He wanted them to be Bemidji lumberjacks, just like he was in high school. He wanted the reservation to remain in their hearts, regardless of where their feet took them. The reservation is often a dichotomy of good and bad, and many of the people on the reservation say, you can't teach someone to be Indian, you have to live Indian. Oh. Daryl started a relationship with a local girl, Ernestine Morgan Johnson. They married on May 14, 1984. She was 19 and he was 24. They had a son, Ronald W. Hedbert, a year later in June of 1985. They were pregnant with their second child when little Ronnie was killed in his grandmother's driveway on September 5, 1986. Children had been playing and attended in the family car when its gear inadvertently slipped into neutral and the car had rolled over him. Oh, that's so sad. It is. It's very tragic. And what makes it even worse is just a few days later... On September 23, 1986, Daryl Kent Hedbert Jr. was born. Oh, that would be really hard. Yes, I think it would be devastating. Mm -hmm. The stress of postpartum, plus deep grief over the loss of her oldest son, took its toll on Ernestine. She up and left her tiny family weeks after Daryl Jr. was born. That was reportedly the last time Daryl Jr. was to see his mother until after the murder of his father.
Daryl Sr. didn't know how to care for his baby, and he wasn't sure he wanted to. So he asked his mother, Helen Hedberg, to help him out. This is how Daryl Jr. came to be living on Moccasin Flats in Cass County, a place rumored to be the most impoverished portion of the reservation, a place that had recently ranked dead last in a recent governmental study measuring places to raise a child in Minnesota based on the health and safety of the children. The kids in Cass County, as per the same study, reported the highest use of drugs and alcohol within their families. Helen didn't have a fancy home. In fact, it was rather ramshackle, but the place she called home was hers, and her grandson was welcomed with open arms. She knew Daryl Jr. would be safe with her. She couldn't say the same if his life had been spent with either of his parents. Both of Daryl Jr.'s parents were reported to be suffering from one type of mental illness or another. Neither of them were strangers to drugs or violence. Helen was happy to share the little she had with her tiny grandson. Helen, like many of the parents and grandparents raising children on Moccasin Flats, worked hard to keep her grandson safe, teach him the ways of the Ojibwa, and loved him. I'm sure she looked around her community and worried that he would get swept up in the poverty, violence, and crime that surrounded her, and she was determined to shelter him from it. But that wasn't meant to be. When Daryl Jr. turned seven years old, his grandmother could no longer care for him. Daryl Sr. arrived one day and unceremoniously moved his young son ten miles away from his grandmother to Cass Lake. Daryl Jr. wasn't sure what to think of his new home. It was a two-bedroom trailer tucked away in a copse of poplar and birch trees. It seemed an ideal place for a childhood, and it was miles away from the drugs and violence of Moccasin Flats. Ten miles to be exact. Daryl Jr. felt uneasy with the peace and quietude that surrounded his new home. He was used to the noise and the bustle of his old home, and he preferred his noisy, dirty town filled with his grandmother's love to this. I can understand that and being kind of homesick, but mm -hmm. don't you think he would adjust and come to love it? It sounds like it would be a great place to grow up. No, he won't because his dad was sinking deeper and deeper into what some people were calling mental illness. This quiet, idyllic home would actually be used to socially isolate Daryl Jr. Oh. Yeah. Daryl Sr. wasn't working, but he was a very busy man. He had a war going on with the farmer living across the road because he was convinced that farmer was poisoning his water. He wrote long, rambling letters to judges and the U.S. Attorney General, Janet Reno at the time, complaining that he was being spied on. He refused to get a telephone because he was convinced it would be wiretapped. He was also busy trying to make good on his claim that it was he, not Lowell Cunningham, who had written the comic book Men in Black, and Daryl Sr. was on a quest to get his royalties from that subsequent movie. Someday he was going to be rich. For now, he didn't really have time for his young son. In addition to his aforementioned pursuits, he also had one other pursuit, the harassment of his ex-girlfriend and their daughter. He had a daughter and a girlfriend? Yes. So this makes me kind of crazy. 
If he had a new family, why was his son still parked at his mother's house? Although he did have the start of a new family at some point, it wasn't sustainable. The courts ended up issuing a protective order against Daryl Sr. soon after Daryl Jr. moved in. Daryl was ordered to stay away from both his ex-girlfriend and their young daughter. So whatever he was doing, it was pretty bad. Yeah, but wait. The courts issued a protective order to protect another child after Daryl Jr. moved in with his dad? And no one thought it was necessary to investigate whether the little boy who had just moved in with him was safe? Nope. For that, someone would have had to call family services and allege some type of abuse. Nobody did. Was Daryl Jr. safe there? I guess safe is a loaded word. But generally speaking, some would call it safe. There was food on the table and a roof over his head. But the house was filthy and rat-filled, and his dad was reported to be physically abusive. Daryl Sr. was also exposing him to horror flicks and porn, telling him it would make him a man. Oof, not a good one. No. And no one was planning to kill him there. On his better days, his dad taught him the skills of the reservation. He could dress out a deer, and he knew how to put a dog down when necessary. His dad would also sit with him on star-filled nights and tell him stories about his heritage. He learned about who his people were and where they came from. His imagination soared as he sat under the trees and stars with his father and learned how, after the white man came, his people were forced into reservations and poverty. He learned about Indian boarding school, spiritual practices that deified the sun, the moon, the four winds, lightning, and thunderbirds. He watched the earth blossom every spring and prepare for rest every autumn as he learned about the four sacred herbs, tobacco, sage, cedar, and sweetgrass, and how to keep them sacred. He learned about his family and how they lived and how they died, and he learned to dodge his father's blows and when to just leave his father be. His father's love was broken and terrifying and Daryl had no choice but to live through it all. By the time Daryl Jr. was 13 years old, he was getting a reputation at Bemidji High School. According to the Star Tribune, he was very open about his fascination with gore and horror movies, vampirism, and his satanic Bible. Like his dad, he would say random things out of turn and wander around chatting with himself. He told his schoolmates he could see balls of light flying out of people, and he could hear voices no one else was hearing. He claimed to have tried to commit suicide at least once, but his description of the incident indicates it was more like he was toying with the idea rather than a real attempt. It still sounds really scary. Mm-hmm. Especially, he's only 13 years old. Yeah. The kids referred to him as Satan's son and the freak, but he didn't really seem to care. That sounds pretty serious. I'm sure his dad was very worried. I'm sure he was. Life could have simply continued this way, except it didn't. Daryl met a girl. He'd gone to the roller skating rink with some friends, despite his not really knowing how to skate. 
Predictably, he kept falling and feeling foolish for trying. As he worked to teach himself to skate, a pretty 16 year old, who was also Ojibwa, glided up to him and took his hands. Skating backwards, she encouraged him and coached him until he was finally skating quite well, and she never let go. Her name was Sierra Goodman, and Daryl's life would never be the same. He fell completely in love with this much older girl. Wow, I'm surprised she was even interested in someone that much younger. That's a big difference at that age. It is a really big difference, but Sierra wasn't really more mature than Daryl was. She never really had stability for a day in her life. She was born in March of 1984 and had spent very little time with her own mother. She was two months old when she was first removed from her home by the county. Yeah, and she was back and forth a little bit, but she was soon joined by her two younger sisters, Amber and Velvet, and they would move these three little girls around together. I'm glad they kept them together. Yes, I am too. But Sierra was very reserved, slow to trust, and reluctant to bond with any of the foster parents, which is no surprise when you learn that Sierra had gone through more than 20 different foster placements by the time she'd met Daryl. That's horrible. Yeah. I mean, even at the age of seven, Sierra knew she was missing out on having her own family. She wanted to be back with her own mother. But her mother had problems of her own and was struggling with addiction. Her mother had drunk enough during her pregnancy that Sierra had been diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, a birth defect that causes mental and sometimes physical imperities. That's really sad. How do you know she was dreaming of her mom at the age of seven? If she was removed from her home at two months old when she first entered the foster care system, Mm -hmm. wouldn't you think she would just think that was her life? I don't have the exact answer to your question, but there are two clues that help to paint the picture. First, Sierra and her sisters were being placed in foster homes as a family unit. And second, the number of foster placements she'd been through. A child with several foster placements usually has one of two problems. She either has some extreme behavior problems or she's been stuck in the proverbial revolving door of foster care. Because her two younger sisters had joined her in her foster placements, we can safely assume that she had spent some periods of time living at home with her mother and her sisters and that the county kept taking the kids away. So the mom kept working to get them back. Well, that makes sense. But still, how do we know what was happening when she was seven? We know that because some very special people entered Sierra's life in April of 1991 when she was seven. A set of foster parents who wound up being very closely bonded to her. Their names were Eugene and Carol Campbell. Jean and Carol had fostered 62 children before Sierra and her sisters came along. Wow, they're very committed to this. They're very dedicated foster parents. Yes, they're very dedicated to taking care of children, and they knew children very, very well. They agreed to take Sierra first, and then the following August, her two younger sisters were added to this family unit once the foster program had ascertained there were no tribal foster homes available. Parental rights were terminated for both of the parents at some point in 1991, apparently due to some sexual and physical abuse of the girls when they were with their parents. Carol will tell you she can still see this sweet, reserved little girl heading up their walk with 
all of her world's possessions in a half-filled brown grocery sack. Sierra and her sisters stole their hearts. The Campbells worked really hard to help Sierra find security and fell in love with her as they helped her deal with her issues of grief, insecurity, and distrust. It sounds like they were better equipped than most to help with that. They do, and they really just seem to connect in a way that doesn't happen very often in foster care. Mm -hmm. Sierra and her sisters quickly acquired the clothes and toys and other belongings that children usually take for granted, and the Campbells were very generous and loving to them. This placement lasted for nine months, and then, without any warning or preparation whatsoever, the agency appeared one chilly day to take the children to their prospective adoptive home. Who was this? Was this a family member? No, it was a white man and his wife who happened to be one-sixteenth Ojibwa. There hadn't even been a prospective parent visit. There were no pre-placement overnight visits. There was no contact whatsoever, and suddenly these children were told, these are your new parents. Did they live on the reservation, or why was this considered a good idea? Because she was one-sixteenth Ojibwa. Hmm. I mean, of course it's good to make sure that they're supported by their culture and their tribe, but that doesn't sound like a strong tribal connection. No, they sound about as white as the Campbells, don't you think? Yeah. That's what I was thinking, anyway. But... That's why I was wondering if they lived on the reservation or if this somehow was going to help them connect with their tribe. No. I think the real issue comes down to having some connection, some blood connection to the tribe. Anyway, that placement only lasted for two weeks, and the children were returned to the Campbells. That was in January of 1992. The girls were left in the Campbells' care until October of that year, when they were moved out and placed in a tribal foster home. Oh no, did something happen? Not in the way you'd think. The Campbells were taking excellent care of these girls. Between January and October, these girls were all progressing well, they felt loved and secure, and the Campbells were working hard to keep them connected with their tribal roots. But the Campbells had realized that they'd fallen in love with these girls. After careful consideration, they petitioned the court for the right to adopt all three of them. In no way could they have anticipated what would happen next. The tribal leadership came unglued. They were not about to lose these three girls from their tribe. They had the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act backing them up. Oh, and what does that act say? It's a law that requires Indian children be placed in Indian homes whenever possible in an effort to preserve Indian tribes, families, and culture. Well, that seems like a very important law. Yes, and on its face it does appear to be quite fair. But in fairness to these girls, they'd been in the first stable home they'd ever known with the Campbells. According to the Star Tribune, no other foster home, either on or off the reservation, had been willing to take in all three girls knowing that they required a long-term placement. I'd wondered about that. It's usually very hard to place a sibling group. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most difficult, especially as the children start to get older. Mm-hmm. And only the Campbells had agreed. And they kept their end of the agreement. There was no Indian family on or off the reservation saying they wanted to take over the care or even adopt these little girls. 
but the tribe wasn't having it. Now that they knew the Campbells' intent, they insisted those little girls be moved from their home. And of course, the county had no alternative but to comply. Sierra and her sisters were placed with a tribal family. The placement failed within a month. So they were placed with a second family, and that placement also failed. These little girls had complex needs that most foster homes were not equipped to meet. So the county, again, placed them back with the Campbells. That's hard. Just were bounced around endlessly. And all they wanted was to be with the Campbells. Mm-hmm. Plus, this case had a twist that got it some national attention. So let's take a step back and talk about tribal enrollment. Oh, that's a good idea. So what is tribal enrollment? Well, tribal enrollment was established in an effort to preserve the unique character and traditions of each tribe. The tribes established membership criteria based on shared customs, traditions, language, and tribal blood. And it's the tribal leadership who have the final say in whether you're a member of their tribe once you apply for enrollment. Most Indians desire enrollment because a member can, of course, honor the uniqueness of their tribe and participate in their traditions together. Additionally, you become eligible for special benefits. For example, you can participate in the Federal Indian Health Services Program, which has really good medical care. That's good. Yeah, and your family's also granted special protections that aren't available to other Americans, especially where the family is concerned. Like in this case, the tribe has oversight over the children, and all the organizations must follow the rules made to keep the tribe intact. Okay, so like if there is an Indian foster family available from your tribe, the children will be sent to that family first. Yes, they have first preference. And the tribe has a lot of say regarding who may adopt their children. If you're non-Indian and allowed to adopt, you must guarantee you'll keep the child connected to his or her Indian culture. So everything got difficult because of tribal laws for Sierra. But what did enrollment have to do with this? Well, Sierra and her sisters had a mother who was enrolled as a Leech Lake Indian. And their father was white. But here's the twist. She never enrolled her children with the tribe. Huh. So, I wonder why, but also, is that why the Campbells thought that they may be able to adopt? Yes. Initially, they thought these children aren't enrolled with the tribe, so possibly we'll be able to adopt them. Mm -hmm. They don't really belong to the tribe. Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. And if the courts decided that children of Native American parents who had never been enrolled were not subject to the act under exigent circumstances, then the Campbells would have been free to adopt the children, regardless of what the Leech Lake Band had to say about it. There's this question regarding what defines a child as Indian under the Indian Child Welfare Act, and then the issue of how to look after the welfare of children with Native parents. The Indian Child Welfare Act was an important step in protecting children, families, and tribes alike from the horrors like Indian schools and the cultural genocides of earlier years. So any challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, of course, becomes bigger than just one child. Yeah, that was an important protection for Native American children and their parents. And still is. 
In May of 1993, the court ruled that the Campbells could adopt all three girls, saying children who were not enrolled with the tribe did not fall under the jurisdiction of the law in exigent circumstances. Okay. And happiness sang through this little family for a time. But the band appealed to the Minnesota Court of Appeals, and at their insistence, the girls were again removed from the Campbells' home as the appeal spent two years wending its way through the courts. That's hard. Yes, especially because the Campbells won again. Oh. With a sigh of relief, the girls moved back in, and the Campbells were very cautious, wondering if this was really the end. It was not. Seven days later, the band forced yet another move out as they took their appeal one step further, appealing to the state Supreme Court. And that court sided with the band, saying, First, the court's determination that good cause deviated from the preferences as determined by the Indian Welfare Act was an abuse of discretion. And second, finding that the children had unmet extraordinary emotional needs was not supported by the evidence. So the Campbells did the only thing they could do. They filed a petition to the United States Supreme Court, but the court failed to grant certiorari, so it was over. The Campbells had lost their bid to adopt the girls. Oh, that's hard. In this case, it seems like that was their best option. But it also seems like the best interests of these specific girls were kind of pitted against the best interests of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm -hmm. The Leech Lake Band, as well as the tribe as a whole, didn't want people chipping away at their right to protect their people and their culture. Understandably. Yeah. But that means that in this case, making exceptions for these three little girls could unfortunately have set a precedent that would do just that. Mm-hmm. And yet, these little girls were dearly in need of parents, and from their perspective, the decision was a no-brainer. They felt Jean and Carol should be allowed to adopt them because they saw them as their parents. And I can see how this happened and why it happened, but it's a tragedy for these specific people. Agreed. The people in the community accused the Leech Lake Band of not appearing to be considering the welfare of Sierra and her sisters at all. Yet the band believed it was doing just that, albeit not in the way the girls wished. They believed that eroding the Indian Child Welfare Act would hurt these children much more in a larger sense. The good of all sometimes usurps the good of one or two. Yeah, I can see where that would be a hard um, tension to resolve. I know, there really isn't a good answer for this one. Mm -mm. Ironically, the attorney who represented the interests of the Indian Child Welfare Act in this case, insisting that the good of all was paramount and meant more than the best interests of these three children, would soon be arguing the merits of a similar case, but from the other side of the courtroom in 2009, in adoptive couple v. baby Veronica. Mm. In this case, the pregnant mother broke off her engagement with a man named Dustin Brown and subsequently contacted an adoption agency without notifying him. She avoided contact with Dustin for her entire pregnancy, except when she texted him asking if he'd rather pay child support for his entire life or simply relinquish his parental rights. He texted back saying he opted for relinquishing his parental rights, which was the same decision he'd made previously regarding a child he had with an ex-wife. 
The mother did not tell him when Veronica was born because she knew he didn't care. She listed the baby's race as her own race, non-Indian, and a non-Cherokee couple who'd been selected by the birth mother was present at Veronica's birth and took her home from the hospital. The mom did sign papers acknowledging that Veronica's birth father was Cherokee. The adoption agency had contacted the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma to notify them of Veronica's birth, but they spelled the dad's name D-U-S-T-I-N rather than D-U-S-T-E-N, and that's what was on his birth certificate. However, Dustin had typically spelled his name D-U-S-T-I-N, so there was no reasonable way for the adoption agency to know that they had misspelled his name. When Veronica turned four months old, Dustin was served papers meant to terminate his parental rights, which he promptly signed and returned to the attorney. As per state law, Dustin had abandoned his rights when he abandoned the child. Soon after signing the papers relinquishing his parental rights, he learned the baby was placed for adoption, and that's when he decided that if his ex-girlfriend was not raising this baby, he wanted to. And, long story short, two-year-old Veronica was taken from the only home she'd known to go live with a stranger, the man who had willingly relinquished rights, but now, using his membership in the Cherokee Nation, wanted them back. That's a terrible case, but that attorney really did flip on this one, didn't he? Yes, he did. He went from saying, no, this is the tribe's right, to, um, this is the child's right. Mm-hmm. But we digress. If you want to learn more about baby Veronica, head to our Patreon page. We'll leave an article written by the Native Sun News there for you. It's an amazing article. It sounds really interesting. Agreed. Anyway, Sierra was now 11 years old, and she and her sisters were devastated. She and her sisters were sent to live with their great-uncle Melvin and Aunt Audrey, who, by the way, had petitioned to adopt the children themselves the month before the Supreme Court heard oral arguments, weakening the argument that a good home could not be found for the children within their family. But, honestly, any placement was bound to fail because these kids had their hearts set on living with the Campbells. Sierra, like most preteens, was old enough to vote with her feet. So she started running away, heading 15 miles down the road to the Campbells' house each time. And the Campbells, being law-abiding, albeit broken-hearted people, would send her right back after giving her hugs and love. Her aunt and uncle's petition to legally adopt all three children was approved by the band and formalized through the courts. This was devastating to Sierra, and... Just as she'd taken out her anger in a letter to the U.S. Supreme Court justices, wherein, at the age of 10, she had said, and this is a quote, We love them so much. You are mean, crude, and evil like the devil. She now focused her disappointment and frustration at someone she felt to be an even higher authority, God. Wow. She's very young to be having this existential crisis. Well, I'm sure because... They were being raised in a Christian foster home. They had prayed for what they wanted. They had hoped God would help intervene. They probably felt their prayers were being answered as they were winning court cases. Mm -hmm. And I can see how this would happen to a little girl who's about 10. Yeah, it makes sense. So 
The Star Tribune reports that it was around this time that Sierra developed a fascination with Satanism, which makes sense because she'd entered her early teens, she was really angry at God, and she was feeling very powerless. Mm-hmm. And like Daryl Jr., whom she'd never met, she became a huge fan of horror flicks and heavy metal. And like Daryl, she said she considered killing herself. She considered killing herself a couple of times. Once she climbed up a water tower but chickened out and just climbed back down. And another time she considered hanging herself. It's horrible. She was beyond angry and really upset that she'd been torn away from her home with the Campbells. In all of her teenage wisdom, she decided that if she killed her aunt and uncle, the county would give up and send her back home. She didn't really understand Indian law, did she? I don't think so. And if she did, she didn't care. She finally had found the place she knew she needed, and she did not intend to be kept away from the parents she had chosen as her own. Sierra was really freaking the Goodmans out. They caught her trying to burn down their trailer. She said she hadn't actually done it because she wasn't sure how to get her sisters out safely. So they did what they felt was best and tried alternate placements. They put her in a psych ward, in residential treatment homes, and in other foster homes. The doctor put her on Prozac, and every time they asked her what she needed to do better, she said she needed her parents, the Campbells. And eventually Sierra had exhausted all of her options. In March of 2000, the tribe realized that Sierra was determined to cause trouble until they helped her set everything back to right in her life. They contacted the Campbells and arranged for her return. Well, that's nice. It's kind of a sweet story, but a very different girl was returned to them. The Campbells were stunned at the changes in their foster daughter, who had now seen too much of the world. The years had not been kind to her, but they were pretty confident that with more love and more time, she'd come back into herself. But time had run out because one night when she was restless, she asked if she could go roller skating and they said yes. Join us next week as we explore how this romance turns toxic and the lasting impact it will have on all of these people's lives. We would like to thank a few people, starting with Christina Rose, who penned an excellent article which succinctly describes the issues and problems that went along with the Campbell's attempt to adopt all three girls. We will leave it on our Patreon page for anyone interested in reading it. We'd also like to thank Larry Oaks and Jerry Hold of the Star Tribune, TwinCities.com, the Native American Press, the Debajimon, a publication of the Leech Lake Band of the Ojibwa Tribe, the Bemidji Pioneer, the St. Cloud Times, and the Native Sun News. We'd also like to thank Jade Brown for our music. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate you and all of the comments that you send to us and all of the encouragement that you give to us. Yeah, thank you. This has been the Parasite Podcast. Good night, and remember, always sleep 
with one eye open. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs>